Rhino, do you copy? Over. Loud and clear, Easy Rhino. Do we have a gig? Over. Start the music. Welcome back to another episode of the Growing Up Punk Podcast, a podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. If you would like to hear and see more about the show and the bands that we cover, then you can go to growingpunkpod.com. There you will find access to everything you need to become a part of this community. So thanks so much for for checking us out, for taking the time to listen. Uh, We really appreciate it. We love seeing your comments and your interactions online. And so please keep that coming because that's what kind of fuels this show. Uh, We love getting to talk about bands that were really impactful to us and uh, their influence on us. We also love uh, to share that with others. And so thanks for for being a part of that. Uh, We've got a really cool interview today with the drummer from the band Cartel. Uh, his name is Kevin, and he was kind enough to take the time out of his busy schedule to to catch up with me and, and to talk music and drumming and, and all sorts of stuff. So this one was kind of a, a different interview. I kind of decided to take a bit of a different approach with this one. So instead of kind of going through the whole, you know, how did the band get started and all that kind of stuff, um, I decided to kind of just focus on on 10 questions that would kind of cover the span of, of their whole time as a band. Uh, if you would like to hear more about um, kind of the formation of Cartel and some of the things that went into their band, then um, I've heard their singer Will on um, a few other podcasts. He was on the Lead Singer Syndrome podcast, and he was also just recently on um, the Wasting Time podcast. So two podcasts that we love here at the show, so go check those out if you want to get more background info. But I just thought it'd be fun to um, especially talk to a fellow drummer, uh, which Kevin was and is, and uh, so we just got we got to talk about drums and the band and touring and all sorts of different experiences and there's a lot of really cool stuff in here and so I'm excited for you get to uh, to listen to this and uh, yeah so thanks for listening again if you like what we're doing then go and check us out online uh, rate us leave a comment connect with us we love all that stuff and it helps the show grow and so we really appreciate that um, but uh, that's enough from here. Here is my interview with Kevin from the band Cartel. And baby, don't follow lead, you never know. Just tell story ends, the story goes, and you are so confused. And baby, it's just like you to say anything today's interview we're gonna do things a little bit differently like instead of i had mentioned you like kind of instead of doing that you know lots of times especially when it's with someone from a band that's been around you know as long as a band like cartel has you know we kind of go through you know how did you you know get into music and kind of all that but i don't know i just kind of wanted to do something different um and and you being a drummer i'm a drummer myself and so i always like to take that opportunity to kind of 
um, talk some drums in there too. So uh, yeah, so we're kind of sure. gonna do uh, you know kind of ten ten questions with Kevin. So it'll be, you know, it might seem a little little sporadic, but trying to kind of cover different ground, you know, without kind of getting into the whole history and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully yeah, there'll be lots of, that. you know, interesting stuff in there because I, I like, you know, I'm a big music fan, so I like all the kind of nerdy stuff that, um, you know, I'm sure there's other people like me that like to hear like, well, let's, let's talk about this tour or that tour, you know, and then right. some people want to know a lot more about like songwriting or... You know, how did you sure. come up with this and that? So anyways, we'll kind of touch on a bunch of things. But um, yeah, I did want to start by asking um, kind of what was the moment or experience that made you want to play drums? Um, and not necessarily kind of how you got into drums, but what made you want to like pursue it more than a hobby? Like at what point did you know, like, okay, like I want to put my all into this and this is what I want to do? Sure. I always, um, I always say that like I didn't have a choice with drums like i felt like drums chose me you know not to sound like cliche yeah but you know like i didn't come from a family of drummers and as much as i have musicians in my family no one was a drummer so it wasn't passed down it wasn't you know around i just gravitated and was mesmerized by drums i thought it was just the coolest thing in the world and i think by being exposed to music through the church uh, it was just kind of around at a young age, but yet I didn't pick it up until I was uh, a little past 13. But I think what I remember as a kid, I remember, uh, so it would have been Metallica's Wherever I May Roam video. Um, I remember being on like vacation um, sometime around like 10 and I was like, and I remember like Lars Ulrich sort of playing drums to that song in an arena with no one in it. And I just thought that was like the, just this massive drum set. And he's just in this, you know, they're just, you know, they're in buses and they're traveling. And it, you know, was like pre show footage and then during show footage. And I was just like, whatever all of that is, that's for me. Oh, that's awesome. And I just like, I mean, because you really hadn't. I don't think I knew what arena tours were. I don't think I knew what like much of the logistics layouts and, and the movements of touring was, but I saw some of it on that. And I just thought it was like, I mean, it, it, it was kind of one of those summers where I remember watching some of those videos on you know, MTV and was like, okay, this is, this is something that could happen, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, and at that point, were you playing with people yet, or you were just kind of getting into drums yourself? Like? I wasn't. I wasn't even a drummer. Oh, okay. I didn't so even play at that point. I mean, that's this was probably three years before I even played. I think um, playing. Pl I, I do remember sitting behind um, the first friend I had that had a drum set was probably two years after you know seeing those videos sitting behind a drum set i can still vividly remember sitting behind it and not knowing how to play it mm. uh like just not knowing anything about it. it it would be another year and a half almost two years before i got my first kit and all i did was sort of sit down uh in the basement of my parents house and just go well that sounds like that 
and that sounds like that and just try to put it together and it, to fast forward i mean like i think once once i could play and was playing with individuals you kind of always hope like well man we're we're going to be rock stars and you you hope that something like an opportunity could present itself for you to make the leap of faith it would take to pursue a career. Uh, and that did ultimately happen for us. So, I mean, I think you, I don't know if there was ever a big moment in my, you know, adolescence that said, okay, I, I have to make this happen. Yeah. I think that kind of always was an underlying emotion. Uh, once you had felt, you know, the substantial, uh, any of the emotions and feelings of playing with a group and having a band and then going to shows, you were like, Oh, I totally want to be on the other side of. Yeah. Did you, so, I mean, cartel is far from, um, a Metallica sounding band. So kind of, you know, <laughs> just in between, I mean, lots, obviously lots happen kind of, you know, in between hearing Metallica and playing with cartel. Um, how did, you know, maybe just briefly, how did kind of your musical um, understandings or interests, you know, kind of shift in there from from hearing and seeing something like Metallica to kind of more the, the pop punk side of things? Sure. I think your sound is always influenced by what you grew up listening to, by probably what was played around you. Um, from your parents and then kind of what you gravitate towards, you know, in, in your youth, like, you know, between 13 and 18, you know, whatever you are as you're discovering music for yourself. So, I mean, growing up and hearing, you know, these eighties and nineties pop ballads, you know, or, you know, hearing all these soft these soft pop, I mean, like anything from Celine Dion in the nineties was just some of the most, you know, like rock and not, not rock bell, but just these pop melodies where like, where melody was so influential. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like growing up playing any underground punk stuff that was pretty aggressive. And I think the first band that kind of combined, uh, soft you know or good melody on sort of uh punkish music was something like a newfound glory for yeah. for a lot of us and i think that was when you took some of these underground punk you know basement show style musical elements and you combined a more uh cleaner melodic uh vocal to it and I think that when you were like, okay, this, this something about a clean vocal will always be uh, pop biased to me or influential to me. So I was like, okay, you just combine some of this and clean it up a little, you know, like maybe take some of the rough edges away from it. Yeah. And it's kind of how you got to cartel. And I think a lot of us, a lot of us grew up that way. We grew up kind of riding around with our moms and hearing, you know, what, what 90s pop was uh and it's hard not to take those influences and kind of turn them around in your later you know you know or early adulthood to your musical influences 
Yeah, and what's really cool about that is, I mean, nobody who would listen to Cartel would say, oh, this reminds me of Celine Dion, or at least I never had, sure. had those. But, you know, it's yeah. it's cool how those under undertones kind of come in, right, where it's like, oh, but I remember this, you know, this kind of harmony right. or vocal from this, and I'm going to now put it over, you know, crunchy guitars. And so much of that right. just kind I mean, of like, you know, goes from one to another. That's really cool. Yeah, you wouldn't think that it's a Celine Dion, you know, or Boys to Men, you know, or Mariah Carey thing, but you know, at its at its core, uh, those were the pop elements at the time, and I mean, I feel like melodies always ruled the world, and yeah. then kind of behind that has been the guitar, um, and somehow it. You you can't necessarily take away some of the biggest pop songs of all time being the common denominator, you know, to certain influences. Yeah. Well, I I wish I would have seen a Cartel CD that said uh, Celine Dion meets Metallica. What you get is Cartel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think you take teenage angst, and then you take, you know, something that you might not have appreciated at the time, and you go back and look at it. And, you know, hearing certain pop songs when they were present, like in their most present form, like, oh, hearing that song when it was just being released and sort of knowing this might be a hit for the rest of time. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's something that I'm sure you, you, you kind of then get a little space for it. And you're like, well, not only was it great then, it's great now. I have an understanding and an appreciation of it even more so yeah um and then so you take what you grew up listening to and then you take even the classics before those classics and then you kind of you know melt that into a pot and you know it's the influences can run so deep and so wide and so vast that you know all of a sudden it becomes its own brand yeah man that's 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 really well said i i like just thinking of those different things that encompass influence and, you know, artists that, that you just never think of. So that's that's awesome. Besides, yeah. So besides uh, Lars, what were some of your other earlier influences as a drummer? Like, how did you find other drummers? Was it just watching MTV? Um, when did you kind yeah, of... Yeah, I think I'd have to say, like, I think a lot of the guys that I tried to play like, no one would ever know. I think uh, the drummer from Hot Water Music was one that I... I loved to learn those songs. Um, a lot of stuff I tried to play, no one's ever heard. I think from a mainstream perspective, like yeah. Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl's probably my spirit animal, mm. as he is for a lot of people. Yeah, so good. I think, I think you know, he's someone that played. Uh, I, 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 his intensity was something that I think I played a lot like um and he's i mean and foo fighters was something that i was probably happening under my nose um as i was starting to get into music and you still couldn't you couldn't ignore like yeah i don't know just all of the way he's played and the stuff he did on queens of the stone age and you know just that style of drumming is very me you know it's it's not difficult um, but I would say it, it is with intent. Yeah, I was just gonna uh, say, and and with confidence. Uh, so, <clears throat> kind of an underplaying with power, if you will. You probably underplay in 
I would say you underplay in the part, right? but probably overplay in the intensity. And I think that's kind of when has been my, my sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I've only seen you play live once, but you know, on videos and stuff, I've always loved, um, you know, drummers like yourself and, and other drummers in, in your genre that, um, cause like pop punk or punk drumming can kind of be like kind of wussy or it can be, you know, really like intentional. And I don't mean wussy like light, but it can be like, a, sure. you know, just play the whatever, but when you add, yeah. like, when you're, like, you know, driving into the drums and in the cymbals and hitting hard, like, I don't know, it just adds such a, a cool dynamic to it. And So you're also yeah, a, a, I, a left-handed drummer, right? Yeah, I started as, I always played so that my top part of my body, so my hands have always been left. Um, but I switched my feet uh, five years into playing. Um so I was playing open-handed uh, on a right-handed layout. Oh. So, so I had a left-handed upper body and a right-handed lower body um, by design. And, and it wasn't something that I was ambidextrous from an upper body standpoint to turn open-handed playing uh, like truly. So like I had an open-handed style, but I still had you know, my hi-hat was on my left side, but so was my ride. So was my crash. So was everything. Hmm. And it, you start running out of room and at least from a rhythm perspective from your left hand, but then you start thinking, okay, if I fill, if I'm filling to my right side, I still have to come back to my left to sort of pick up, pick up where I'm going from a rhythm side. And it was just, not only did it look funny, but it was partially difficult to play. And I think that I, I saw that I was going down uh, a path that I probably couldn't talent-wise or physically make up for. Hmm. And so it was like the more, the more, the, the toughest but easiest way to fix this is to switch and to go to a tra- traditional left-hand setup. Uh cross over my top and relearn my bottom so my feet had to switch and so switching my feet at a time when you know i at this point i'm 18 and i'm, I'm about to leave to go to college uh, i've already learned the other way uh, i've got a job like i have to you know, you know school is becoming more and more important so i missed out on those formative years that i had taught myself to play and i would taught myself to play you know, complex, you know, no effects, lag wagon, suicide machines, like really intricate kick pattern stuff. Right. And was now having to switch that. And that was incredibly difficult because I had already written so, so many little things in my head. I even at one point got a left-handed double kick pedal, but was still using my right foot which was my old kick foot. So I was using the extension to do the drumming and I had to throw it away and like train myself to start over. So that's crazy. Eventually it became a thing where I, I, I still don't think that my left, my, my kick foot is as strong as it could have been had I just stuck the other way, but there became some hybrid level of drummer in there somewhere. But 
Yeah. It's weird. Man, that's crazy. Well, and even thinking to when you first got into drums, you know, like when, you know, most most drummers are, you know, are right-handed. So, like, how did you, you know, did you have an influence or someone, like, when did you finally see a left-handed drummer? It's like, oh, okay, there's someone I can kind of emulate because no, you kind of have to just make it up unless, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that is that is a left-handed person living in a right-handed world. My, my kit was stacked up. So it was, you know, kick, floor, rack, rack, snare, you know, and it was like Christmas morning. It's like, you know, here's this thing in your basement. And it was just stacked up, you know, in a, you know, bottom to top. Right. And I said, I set it up right-handed because that's all I'd ever seen. Yeah. But yet knew, didn't know, but innately started playing open-handed because I'm so like by design, my, my brain was like, well, this is your, this is your rhythm hand. But then I was like, well, why am I not crossing them? You know? So yeah. I kind of put myself behind the eight ball just by setting it up the wrong way and then playing it the way that I thought I should. So had I just crossed it over and set it up the other way from the beginning, it probably wouldn't have been so bad, but I ne had never seen a kit that way. Right. I didn't know that that was a way to do it. So I didn't quite understand why I was doing that then. Um, until I realized it was like, Oh, well you just, you set it up the only way you had seen, but you just should have done it the other way. And you probably would have been fine. Yeah. But <laughs> that's at an age when like, you don't want to be different right. to some extent. So I was like, I don't understand why, but I'm, just, I'm not going to ask questions now. Let's just, let's just start playing. Yeah. Do you remember what drummer it was that you finally saw a left-handed drummer? You know, I don't even, I don't even realize it other than just sort of knowing that I had kind of done it wrong from the start and that all that I had to do, all that I did was just set up a right-handed kit and play left-handed on it. And I should have just set up a, a left-handed kit and played left-handed on it. And um, I think I'd just gotten enough years into it where I hadn't really seen anyone as much as I physically was seeing its detriment. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like how it looked. So I just kind of switched, but then saw... I think the drummer from Further Seems Forever oh, yeah, is yeah. a lefty. Yeah. He's a lefty, but he sets he sets his kid up live. Uh he sets up sideways to the to the stage. Okay. So even as a left-handed drummer, I didn't realize he was left-handed for some amount of years because I just wasn't staring at his setup. He, you know, he took a a, a left-handed kit but set it up sideways so you just kind of were like oh you didn't notice right yeah yeah. and then all of a sudden like i played left-handed and you started seeing i can still watch a left-handed drummer and it takes me a second to realize that they're left-handed yeah even though i'm left-handed you just i don't know why yeah Ridiculous. well it's just not one of those things you see much <laughs> same with left-handed guitarists like i don't know you know if i know yeah. any of those you know in the kind of punk realm um, or even if you see, you're probably just like, oh, it takes you a while. And it's like, oh, that's totally the wrong way, but not the wrong way, but the different way. So anyways, yeah, for yeah, sure. well, you, you uh, seem to pull it off and, and, uh, <laughs> used to it now. So I guess just one yeah, of those right. kind of growing pains you just have to do. But 
Sweet. Well, yeah, we're going to get into uh, some cartel questions now, so we're just going to kind of get uh, right to it. Um, so what was the first big opportunity that cartel got? And big can be whatever in your mind is big. It doesn't necessarily need to mean like, you know, big scene-wise, but in your mind, what was kind of your first big opportunity? Um, I think the, the first big thing we got was probably direct contact to the owner um, and operator of Militia Group. Um, our guitar player, uh, our original guitar player had, you know, had formed a relationship with some of the guys in Copeland oh, yeah. and through Copeland and through Copeland had, had met the guy that runs the label. And I think, you know, in as much as you don't want music to be a, a who, you know, world, like any other job, like, Oh, well, my friend needs a job. Let's get him a job. That sort of became the connection. It was our first connection. So, I still think we earned it on merit. You know, we all we did was make an EP and submit it to him as like a well. We know this guy runs a label. We might as well send it to him. Um, and he was like, "Wow, this is this is pretty good." Like, you know, could you do more like this? We're like, "Well, yeah, these are just the first couple songs we've written." And um, so I think there's a few things. It was you know getting in a decent studio and getting a decent sounding. Uh, first bit of music out there. I think the first thing that we did differently compared to to our other bands was do a professional design, professional layout, professional pressing, where we had done some of the legwork for any label at that time to all they had to do was just press it more and put their stamp on the back. So we had done a lot of the legwork for any label. So their investment was just at that point probably uh, pressing physical and distribution and any sort of deal in quotes that we were going to to sign. Uh, so that was probably our first, you know, with our first break. Um, I would say that our the the tour we did in the winter of '06 uh, was starting line and. Uh, Copeland and uh, a few other bands, and that was that was a pretty successful tour for us. I think that was right when they were uh, kind of hitting a, a pretty big mark. So we got in front of a lot of great, mm. uh, like-minded fans that were just kind of had heard of us, and and I think that was a really big push um forward for us and i mean but i mean i think one of the things that people don't realize is you can probably get a label or a recording contract or management um you know the one of the hardest things to get is a booking agent yeah um and i don't think people understand how that game is really significant the person who puts you on the road and in front of people especially on the way up to the stratosphere of, of professional music. Uh, you've got to have that. And I think once you have someone in that corner to push you and to kind of align you with certain bands, um, really starts to kind of get the traction. Uh, and then at that point, 
it, it all moves so quickly that you aren't quite sure what the one thing was, hmm. what the break or the change, you know, all of a sudden things just, it, it, it really happens so fast or in my experience, it happens yeah. so quickly. Um, and you're kind of like, wow, like what was it? I don't know. Yeah. It just all of a sudden people care and you're like, Oh crap. I hope we don't let anybody down. Yeah. Well, when you guys signed to Militia, like I can't remember exactly what the roster was then, but I do remember thinking that, you know, you guys kind of stood out on your own. Like I know they had, you know, a band like Rufio that was, you know, more kind of right. fast tech punk, but there wasn't like a lot. They kind of had more bands like the beautiful mistake and noise ratchet and kind of more. Yeah. Like, they've done the like that. They, yeah. I think they had Copeland Rufio. It was like Branston. It was, right. um, rocket summer. Um, you know, apple seed cast was had like right, dropped to yeah. them to do to do a record. They really kind of had a, a little hodgepodge. And I think, you know, I, we came from that era where, okay, drive through had obviously come, come up. And that was back when the the label the label was almost as significant as its roster. Right. And so you had Vagrant and you had uh, you know, drive through and you had all of these sort of little you know, of course there was victory and whatever else, but I mean we saw militia group as an opportunity to where no one had really blown up from that label more or less which we thought was like a, a chance um yeah. that they had a, a lot of a lot of really close uh things to to break and that there was a really good core there and we were like well let's let's go there i mean not only that was part of the decision like we were like this looks like a good fit because you didn't want to be the last band to sign to drive through you kind of knew that not knew the tide was shifting, but it's like, well, they've already had so much good and heat for so long. Like you're just going to be following in the wrong, not the wrong footsteps, but you don't want to be the last person or the runt to that, so to speak. So we were like, let's go to this and be one of the bigger bands on this. Maybe it'll, it'll work for us that way. But they were also one of the only labels we were interested in signing with. So it kind of worked out very serendipitously. Yeah, well, that's a, a cool way to take it because, yeah, like you said, lots of be like, oh, we we got to be on the label, kind of the it label versus where can we stand out on our own instead of just kind of following in a path. And I mean, it obviously played out well. I, I remember. I think you... Go ahead. I, I was just say, like, I remember uh, like Chroma like doing super well, and you know when it came out, like it was kind of everywhere, and and so that, I think that was a great choice on your part. Yeah, we 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 saw an opportunity there. I think we not only were one of the, the only one of the only ones that was an option, but we also had really purposely reached out and and tried to get that. Um, and I mean, it's kind of like producers, you know. Like sometimes a producer has, um, sometimes they do the one, two, three, or four things that truly define them and like get them in the in the light. And then a lot of people come chasing that light or are drawn to it. And it, and not to say the magic is gone, but you know, like maybe it's sailed, maybe that person's on autopilot, who knows if they're as sharp as they were 
that created that magic. And you might be going to them for all of the, I don't know, all the wrong reasons at that point. It might be too late. And so you never know. So I think you kind of have to take that into con- consideration. Like, you know, what is, what is the, the, the timeline or, you know, how long can that last? And do you want to be on the tail end, the beginning the middle of it, et cetera. And I think we timed it right. I think everything worked out the way we, it could. I mean, acceptance was on militia. They were already, they were already, uh, they were already on Columbia at that point. But I think that, that, uh, that EP they had before phantoms came out was, was on militia group. So, I mean, we knew we were in good hands and had a good opportunity that that had a label that was connected in a roundabout way right. through, through distribution to the major label thing. So if you're looking at a at it like a major league, minor league thing, we were like, this is a really good situation that we think if we get in and do well in, we can probably get taken to the majors pretty quickly. And it's kind of what ended up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love, I love just all those different correlations and, and backstory. So that's why, yeah. Oh, you know, a simple question, like a big opportunity can kind of lead to all this, this cool backstory yeah. of, you know, the music industry and how one thing leads to another. And, and, uh, yeah. That, yeah. That, that's and it's, great. it's crazy. A lot of things can be that big break, but it really ends up being a culmination of so many little breaks, uh, that are both planned and by happenstance. And then all of a sudden it, it just ends up being the story. Yeah. Awesome. What's uh? What would you say is your favorite cartel album and and why? And do you have any specific memories? You know, I, I know there's lots of memories tied to each album, but if if you had to pick one, uh, what would it be? Huh. I think. Um, hmm. I think that our self-titled is probably my favorite. Um, the the main reason being is like we were trying part of it was knowing that you were trying so hard to to match your prior success but i think what what i really mean when i say it's my favorite is that the time that you know going into chroma we were still very much we were young and i was still working like two jobs and you know like we were still like you still weren't quite necessarily a a quote-unquote professional musician yet right but by the time it came uh around to recording our second full length you know it was your only job that was all i had to Mm. do and all we had to do and so there was really an unabated process in creating like whether it was some of the like a lot of the songs and ideas that Will and Joseph like came up with, but then the time that we spent in a rehearsal studio or practice space just hashing them out and playing them over and over and over again. And I'm that kind of learner or writer. Like so for my parts, I just have to play it. I think for drummers, you can think of the most instinctual piece to accompany a part of music, but the more you play it with the band, the better, the better the parts become, uh, at least for me. But I felt that way 
for a lot of the parts and a lot of the songs. So when I say it's my favorite, it's because there were so many little things around it, like that's all we had to do. We got to practice that record the most. We, we could all track those songs in single takes because by the time we got in the studio, we were so, we were so prepared. Um, it doesn't get a lot of love because of the whole band in a bubble thing that surrounded it. Right. But if you remove that and you're able to take away some of the stuff that surrounded that record, like I really enjoy the songs. The other part is, is that that was back in a time when um, even the professionals that we were working with didn't really say no to us. You know, like you really should have had more people saying, um, maybe you do this or maybe you don't do that, or maybe you submit more songs. And I don't necessarily like that structure, but I mean, the first two and a half albums we wrote our EP into Chroma into our self-titled record. were literally the first, what is it? 37 songs we wrote as a band. It's exactly what we put out. There were no B sides. There was no unproduced tracks. They were clear envisioned, like albums like that was it like we everyone's like what what songs didn't make chroma and i'm like those are the only songs we wrote it's Hmm. kind of the same thing it was for our self-child record so the process of it the songs like just that moment in time was super unique i think and probably my favorite from some of the songs from the way it was written from the way it was recorded like all that makes it my favorite yeah that's that's really cool because i kind of assume just from you know, different things, you know, I've read over the years about that experience um, that it wouldn't have wouldn't have stood up that much. So uh, for, for those that don't don't know kind of the whole band, the bubble thing, you can go look that up on Wikipedia or something. It was uh, a pretty cool thing, especially um, back then. But at the same time, I think it kind of came with a lot of scrutiny and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. But if, if you so besides what you just shared, if you kind of have, you know, one memory from from that period, um, kind of whether good or bad, what would, what would that be? Like, is there anything Hmm. like, you know, did you like drink obscene amounts of Dr. Pepper or, you know, anything just kind of like random that was kind of goofy or something that stood out? I mean, that whole process was incredibly enlightening from, um, from how TV is produced to, the amount of money that gets thrown around and not to the bands at all, you know, but just like sponsorship dollars and these big projects and the cost and the, the logistics, you know, you learn a lot about that thing. I think um, one of the coolest things for me personally was that the pier that they built the bubble on was pier 54 in New York. And that was um, owned by white star lines which was the company that ran the Titanic, the Britannic, um, and the Olympic. And that was where the Titanic was supposed to dock. Hmm. And it's where the Lusitania actually docked and released the survivors on that pier. And when you drive up to that pier, you can still see the wrought iron metal work in the front of it uh, still says White Star Lines on it, which was has nothing to do with music, but I was such a Titanic fan in terms of like a, an engineering and like just, it was one of those things I read about as a kid before the whole movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet came out. I was just enamored with that. So it was kind of cool to 
have something professional in my life be associated to that in a way. Yeah. Um, I think, <laughs> I think being alone on the end of that pier on the Hudson river by yourself with your childhood, best friends staring out at like the, you know, the empire state building and just going like, we grew up in like rural Georgia. Like, what are we doing here? It was those nights when you were, when you were by yourself, but you're like, what? This is everyone else's jobs. Like, we're just having fun. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) It just was so, it was so weird. Um, but when I can say that when you're faced with an opportunity like that, when you're in the quote unquote major leagues or whatever you want to call it, you are battling the pinnacle of modern music and you are always trying to chase a success or a high or, you know, whatever it is um, to be bigger and better than the day of month or, you know, album year or whatever you want to call it before. Yeah. And when you're faced, when, when given that opportunity, you know, you kind of have to take them and you realize, you know what? I don't know if we have an opportunity to say no to this opportunity. We have to just sort of take it in stride and go with it. I think, um, so that was where like, okay, let's, let's give it a go. I think, uh, in the end, what probably played more to its, to its disconnect is we are a comedy. We as a group, as a friendship, you know, as a band, we're funny guys. We're lighthearted. We're not dramatic. You know, they wanted a drama and that's not who we are. If they would have sold it as a comedy, they probably would have, it probably would have landed more, right. you know, um, and not seem, you know, seem so trite. Um, but again, like I can always say for the rest of my life, remember that one time me and my best friends had a TV show on MTV, like in my mid twenties, like what a cool time. So, yeah. Is, is uh, that on uh, YouTube or anything? Like, can you go on? Yeah. If you go to, it? if you go to YouTube and you Google, I'm um, not Google, but if you search like band in a bubble, it'll come up with like best of highlights. There's like best of day one and best of week one. And Honestly, watching those is better than watching anything else because they're just as entertaining. And you sort of see what I'm talking about with how how lighthearted and silly and funny we are. Because, I mean, like, how would you not be? We were never, like, the artistic band, like, woe is me. Like, my troubles are so troubled that I've got to write about it. That was never really us. Like, we had very safe upbringings like our you know like it, we, we have good families and and good opportunity and good heads on our shoulders and we got very lucky by taking some risks so like there's really not a lot of drama for us and so we just had the most fun doing anything we ever did so um but yeah dude what a time yeah well I, i'm gonna go uh, tomorrow and, and look that up because it's been a long time dude, look it up I've it's, it's silly stuff. as hell but i mean it's it's so crazy yeah that's awesome uh yeah moving on what uh what's your favorite headline tour that cartel did who are the openers and, and why does that tour stand out um probably the the tour we did it was us um so it was Cartel, um, Boys Like Girls. Um, uh, what's the band? 
I'm spacing out. Um, with the guy from Midtown, uh, they wore a bunch of purple. <laughs> oh, um, Cobra Starship? Is that it? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, you can tell I'm getting a little older. Yeah. yeah uh, that, that tour was, was, was probably the most fun. I think just like with the crew that was on it, I think from a headlining perspective, that was, um, that was our favorite. Awesome. And what about a uh, favorite support? So I'm sure you did a lot of, a lot of support tours over the years. I'll have to, I'll have to kind of lump a little bit together because you know, I'll say it was like the support year. So in 2006 was probably one of our busiest years. And we, I can't believe it was 14 years ago, which is absolutely stupid. Um, but we did the starting line tour in the winter. And then we did Warp Tour that summer. Oh, nice. And then that fall, we did uh, our, our Newfound Glory Tour. And Newfound Glory, like, you know, like I said before, was kind of always a big influence for us. Um, and to get a tour with them, we toured with them at a time where we probably could have headlined. But we just wanted to, wanted to tour them so bad yeah. that we didn't care. And we didn't care what they paid us. We were just like, I don't give a shit. And it was just so fun to kind of be equals with them, you know, on the same level and just kind of, you know, have fun with them as friends and, uh, and to befriend them. And they were so genuine and, and kind uh, and accepting of us. So and we got along great. So, like, I would just say that that year was kind of one of those ones, you you know, you, you write a, a book about because it was just I think we were gone like. 290 days or something out of a year like it was just one of those years where you didn't you didn't sleep in your bed but it didn't matter because so much was happening so much was changing it was just there was just so much amazing things happening yeah and were you noticing like from one tour to the next um you know just a growing fan base or what, what kind of things were you noticing oh yeah it it was it was in that year specifically it was crazy because i mean like you know, you're, I think well, another, one other thing that people don't realize is how kind of how planned out a year can be. Um, so, for example, I mean, like in the fall of one year, you probably know what you're doing for the following three seasons. Yeah. You know, you know what you're doing in that in that uh, late winter, spring. You know what you're doing in summer. You know what you're doing in the fall of the next year. And I think one of the things that you can't predict when you're booking those things is what level of success, at least on the way up to the apex, like what, where you're going to be, what your value is going to be, what your draw is going to be. So they're really hard to predict. And, you know, we started at one level and then ended on another. Uh, and I, yes, to, like, to your question, that we all the way through that year, I think specifically on Warp Tour, that year we had on the earn ball stage, which is kind of one of the smaller, you know, um, you know, less impressive stages, if you will, in terms of its size and glamor and, and location. And it's kind of meant for smaller up and coming bands. And that year in 06, the three bands on that at, a, at any given time was cartel mute math and gym class heroes. Oh, cool. And, and again, like, you know, they, they put it kind of, you know, off the beaten path and you would see these crowds 
perform on a stage that it was intended for a hundred and there'd be thousands. And it was almost like, what the hell is going on? And no one could kind of like understand it. And we just went up there and you got, you know, you got 30 minutes and we're like, watch this. And we would just play our little hearts out. Yeah. So did they, did they ever like move you up to a stage or you just did the whole summer on that? And no. And there's a crazy reason why. So like in that year and with most warp tours, you know, they're obviously capable of seeing that type of demand and growth for a band. And it does benefit the tour more to kind of move things around and you can totally get bumped up to a different stage. However, we had basically signed up with Ernie Ball in a way that was sort of a contractual, non-contractual like agreement where they basically paid for our food. So you get a meal ticket, you know, kind of thing. And you get scanned for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And kind of by them buying our food was kind of like a binding contract in a way that we couldn't be taken off that stage okay. as I've been told, or as we understood it in that time. Yeah. Um, as sort of a reason why we couldn't be taken off because it's like, well, they kind of have you. Um, and those are things that like, you know, I'm, I'm, something in a management should have caught and, and reworked. But I mean, you just go through the motions and you just get through it. Yeah. Well, and there's something cool about just sticking with it, just knowing like, you know, we're going to, we're going to pack this out and kind of blow everyone away and catch people yeah. off guard. And right. Cause main stage is like, okay, well, main stage, you know, you know, people are going to be there, but I'm sure there was something cool about like, okay, you know, how, how many people are going to yeah. be here in this city, in this city and just seeing that. Yeah. They kind of, they, they kind of positioned you on kind of, proving anyone wrong if it came down to it yeah well, that's awesome so uh kind of moving uh, back to uh, talking drums a bit i'd love to hear uh what's what's your most memorable drum endorsement so even if you want to talk about you know what kind of drum endorsements you had and and when you know did one stand out over another um yeah that's well, one I that's, mean, yeah i mean i grew up i had a pearl and loved pearls growing up and I, I ended up, so here's a crazy story. So the of militia group had grown up in the United States in Kansas city and his, one of his friends was Jake Cardwell. Well, Jake Cardwell's dad is bill who owns CNC drums. Mm, So when we were just kind of hitting the road, of course, through the label, they're like, we can get you a, a, a hookup on CNC. And it was going to be my first custom kit. And I, of course, this is coming out of the, the Orange County uh, era of custom drums. Yeah. So I really had drawn up this pretty elaborate uh, design of a kit. And I remember ordering it and it came, it came with like the wrong hoops oh, and no. like the base hoop were broken and, you know, like it was one of those things where like I had done the math on all the ratios, on all the sizes of all the stripes so that everything was mathematically correct. And, and it was kind of like, thanks for your order. We'll have it processed and out to you in, you know, whatever days. And that's not a knock on Bill or Jake or CNC as a whole. I had probably square peg round hole a little bit. Like I probably, you know, if I had ordered a, 
a really beautiful wood grain kit from them. It probably would have been absolutely perfect. And I love their drums. Yeah. Um, it was just a really funny, it, it was just a really funny thing that happened where I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, and the kit, I mean, the kit was beautiful. It ended up being the way that it came was actually probably for the best. So it was a really good uh, thing. And then I ended up meeting uh, through my great friend, Andrew Cook from the receiving end of sirens. He was, they were out of Massachusetts, and that's kind of how I met. And I think SJC only had seven, maybe seven people on their roster at that time. Oh, wow. So they're pretty um, good. Oh, I, I lost right, you lost there you. for a second. And we're back. Okay. <laughs> um, that was. Uh, I hooked up with them very early on, SJC, and they were making drums out of Mike's grandma's basement and really small operation. But again, I kind of related to their, you know, I think I had spent time in my own house, you know, hoping to build and create my own drum company and they were actually doing it. So no matter like the craft or the quality, I just liked them as a group trying to make drums for anyone they could, as crazy as they could get, and as fast as they could get them out. And it was, it was fun to grow with them as they grew. And so like, I really, really loved that endorsement. Did it come with any hookups and perks? Absolutely not. You know, like they were a small company, but I think that's just where I wanted to be. So like being offered free drums and just supporting good people, I just took the road that I aligned to the most. Um, and that was it. And then, I mean, I ended up getting, uh, a Minel endorsement. Oh yeah, awesome. and I had come, ac- I had come across Minel symbols through the drummer uh, of Acceptance. I'd never really seen him or played them, and he was playing them at the time, and I loved them. And they were like, "Yeah, dude, we'll give you a deal." And I was like, "Fantastic!" And we were longtime partners. So, yeah, I mean, I think any time that a symbol package would show up at my house. Oh, it was hard best. not to, it was just, it was really crazy. You know, it would show up and I would do the math and I'd think about how much I was being given. And I would think about how hard I had to work as a kid yeah. to get one symbol, let alone a box. Yeah. No kidding. And it just, it just blew me away. Cause I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. So how many SJC kits did you end up getting? Kind of over the years. I went through one, two, three, four, five. No, six. Six Six kits. Wow. Do you still have all those kits? I do not. I only have I only have one. Oh, like you just kinda (laughs) sold them off or whatever after? Yeah, so I got my the first kit I ordered through them was was really elaborate and they were trying to do lacquer kits in the winter and they couldn't get the lacquer to cure correctly. Uh, And so the kit kind of started to disassemble um, and separate. And they were like, look, let's just go ahead and swap for something like this, et cetera, et cetera. So we swapped it out. Um, And then for some reason that I really can't say why I don't get I don't get as like attached to my drums as I should. I think 
I think design them is one thing, and then I play them, and then I'm like ready for the next one. Now, if you told me, if you were like, hey, do you have all the cars you've ever owned? I'm like, all but one. Like, I can't sell a car to save my life. I love them all. I want to keep them all. I want to collect all of them. I don't want anyone else to have them. I don't know why I feel that way. Yeah. And and it's really strange. But um, I don't think I ever want a room to step full of drums. Because I can only play one kid at a time. Yeah. Oddly enough, I had a buddy in town in Georgia, in Atlanta, that like was trying to run like a consignment company for drums and uh, he was really connected with SJC, and I was like, "Dude, like, I need to sell these kits as much as you're trying to get a name for yourself. So let's team up." And he helped me like get rid of a few. Long story long, I was in Nashville about a year or two ago, and a buddy of mine comes up to me who was from Georgia, who had just moved to Nashville, and he goes, "Do you remember that orange acrylic kit you had that was like a John Bonham kit?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he goes, "I bought that," and I was oh, like, awesome. "What?" So like to run into a person randomly at a house party that like owns one of my old drum sets was crazy yeah you know or or the kit that i recorded chroma on i sold to a guy that grew up like in the town beside me and then he sold it to some guy who found me on facebook and was like this your old kit i was like yep that's me he's like cool and i was like what the hell like what yeah well that's, that's... i just sold yeah i just sold the kit that i had made for the band in the bubble stuff like i just sold that to uh a friend who has like kind of been been close around the band for some years. And he was like, I was like, here you go. And he's like, I didn't know you like used this on this tour and this stage and this thing. Like, there's photos of it everywhere. And I was like, well, yeah, man, I played the hell out of it. And he's like, he's like, you sure you want to sell this? And I was like, sure, man, go for it. It's yours now. And he's like, what? Um, yeah, that's amazing. What? I think they, they, I think they give more joy out that. I don't know. Like, I think someone might have more joy playing that kit. Um, you know, in a new in a new life kind of way than like I would like for me to walk into a room and see them all lined up like they're in my brain like I have them like they're stored in in me somewhere like so I don't yeah. think I need them collect as well as I definitely don't I definitely can't afford to have like fourteen thousand dollars in drums just stacked up in the corner yeah <laughs> like, exactly yeah yeah is that part of it so, where it's like well. You know, life is still expensive, and but I love that. I mean, that, yeah. that's so cool to pass on those memories, and it's like, you know what? I I use this and got joy out of it, and I give it to someone else, and you know, yeah, I, yeah. It, stuff is only stuff, it, right? Like it, it the memories. It really is. I have, I have the one kit. I had the last kit that I ever got from SJC. I still have, and it was by far, I think, my most favorite. Um you know, from the gentleman that kind of sold it to me and worked with on it. He and I work together now, uh, Brian Rushton. He's, uh, he's a part of the bar and owner of the bar that I work at. Um, you know, he helped, he helped sell me that kit. Josh, you know, one of their builders that passed away last year built Mm. that kit. So that one, I think that's the one that like, I've gotten more compliments on people being like, Hey man, that drum set sounds great. Um, I also just hit the shit out of it, but that one I'll probably keep. It's the one I have now and it's the one I've had the longest. So I think I'll keep that one. Yeah. What's, what's the look of that one? Series. Sorry. Um, you're all right. Uh, my parents, I was graduating high school. My parents were like, do you want a laptop for college? And I was like, no, I want a drum set. And they got me a DW, like just three pieces, like no snare. Um, 
And I still have that kit at my house right now. So that's the one that I hold on to the most. Like that one is sentimental to me. Um, but the rest I think just kind of belong to everyone. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the, so you just cut out there for a second. So I don't think you heard about, um, what's uh, the look of the, of the SJC kit you have right now? So growing up in Georgia, like especially like around my grandparents' house, there was uh, a ton of pecan trees. And so I hit up, you know, the guys at SJC and I was like, can you find me, um, a pecan veneer? And they're like, totally. And so they found this wood that, you know, you know, when you look at like a, like a stained, a stained, you know, satin kit, it's just regular clean wood. Yeah. But this, this has like a texture and almost like a scaliness to it, almost like a reptile kind of thing. There's, there's just, there's just so much grain and texture, um, that it just looks so different and, um, so there was like a, a history there. I'm just kind of trying to like pay homage to like my grandparents and like my history and just yeah. some of that, of that time in my life, like thinking of them and where I grew up and, uh, trying to turn that into like a drum memory. And it just came out as like, it was when I had kind of realized that I had had every size drum in the world and I finally like got it right. I was like, mm. this is my these are my numbers and this is my, my look and this is my style. And this is this, this I think is me. And I think it's aged incredibly well. I think it looks beautiful just as it did then as it does now. And I think it's perfect. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So when you're, when you're on tour, there's a lot of driving. And uh, so I'd love to hear if you have any kind of standout memories from driving and any go-to records that you would listen to when you were, when you were the driver. <laughs> um i remember we started a tour in atlanta once or we hopped on a tour in atlanta and for some reason it had it had snowed uh as we headed to florida oh wow and i'm i'm the driver like car guy of the group so i was like all right like i can do this and so like every time it was like snowy weather it was like you drive <laughs> i was like okay and I mean, we, we were driving through like Colorado, Wyoming or something at one point and it was snowing and we hit like a 6% downgrade thing. Yeah. And we stopped like towards the top of it and I was like, are we really about to go down this? And they're like, it'd be fine. So, I mean, like I was driving this van and trailer, like with two feet, I was like gear shifting from like lows and high gears uh, like engaging and disengaging uh, the, the, the traction control to be able to spin the wheels so fast to burn through the snow to even hit the pavement. Like it was a, a very herring, uh, herring experience, but I was like, boom, nailed it. Uh, oh, we awesome. used to hit, we used to hit those, uh, <laughs> you'd go down to like a construction area and you're like, Hey, just tap one of those. Just tap one of those barrels and you just, <laughs> you'd send one. When we first started touring, like, you would just play, like, play pranks on all the other bands that were driving, like, to other shows with you. So we used to, like, fill condoms with, take a condom and, like, fill it up with, like, mayonnaise, relish, and, like, uh-huh, mustard from, like, a, like, a, <laughs> like, like, like a gas station. Yeah. And then we'd, 
then you'd pour like Mountain Dew into it and then twist it and throw it out the window and it just hit their windshield and explode. Like, oh man, that's nasty. Like, what the hell are we thinking? Um, honestly, yeah, it was. The driving's the craziest part of any of the really like startup touring stuff. And even now, like, I don't think I can drive more than four hours or else I'm, I like, I want to die. I, yeah. I hate driving. Nashville to my hometown is like three hours and 45 minutes and it might as well be 21 hours. Like it oh, just, man. I, I can't, I can't. Oh, um, see, I, that's part that I miss. Cause I love just being on the road and listening to music and, but yeah, that it's another part that lots of people don't really think about with bands. It's like, they just think about going to see them play live. They don't realize they've been in sitting in a van for eight hours every day for however many days or however many hours. Yeah. Right. Like it's really I mean, the, imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, Imagine getting up and going on a vacation every single day. Now, it's not always necessarily about the destination, but the, the journey was part of that. And you just, I mean, you'd be sitting there in a van, either sleeping. And this is, I mean, all this was kind of, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, I mean, you're, we didn't have the phones that we have now. We didn't yeah. have the technology that we had. We would have to plug we would have to have an, a, a tape adapter that could plug into a laptop and play DVDs if we wanted to like watch a movie. Right. You know, so the technology lends itself to be a little more comfortable now than then. And, you know, even reading can make you dizzy or you like it, you, if it's the roads bad, you can't read well. It's, it, there's not really a lot to do. And some of those drives, when you head out to the West, the days that you have off are only off days so that you can drive. Right. And I mean, like, you know, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just time and there's nothing you can do, but just sit there. And yeah. I think when you end up wasting enough time, you start going, I, I, I don't, how much time have I got to waste? Like I'm not getting any younger. So yeah, that's it's true. Kind of crazy. Well, what were some of your uh, favorite go-to records when you were driving, or did you just kind of shuffle it, or what was I? Uh, I listened to Phantoms a lot. I listened to Say Anything as a is a real boy or whatever a whole bunch. Yeah. I listened or uh, as a boy, I listened to um, a lot of Bon Jovi. Okay. <laughs> well, you need those um, anthems to keep you going all night. You know, yeah. I think the longest stint I ever did was like 10 or 11 hours of driving straight. And I was just listening to like Andrew WK. Oh, yeah. And so like good. any like anthem that I could. Um, yeah. Some, yeah. It was always just like some sort of like power ballad. And I was just like, let's go. And I would just get jacked. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Were there any uh, bands that Cartel never got to play with or tour with that? that you hoped you would have and, and who was that? Yeah, I think, I think Jimmy world is probably one of those oh, bands. Yeah. I wish we could have played with. I think that we had such a, um, I just think that our, we probably could have created a set that really meshed with their sound and their set. Yep. And, um, I, we, we've played shows with them or I've played shows with them and other bands, but it's, it's uh it's one that i wish we would have gotten like an eight week tour on you know mm. just a really long run to kind of to to see them there's a lot of the times 
when you really got to tour with a band that you admired or liked or enjoyed was that you got to see them, you know, 40 something times. Yeah. You know, like we got to see acceptance play phantoms, you know, 40 times, like, holy crap. You know what I mean? Like I got to see, you know, some of the best bands play their best songs, you know, more than their, more than their biggest fans. And I think that's kind of one of the coolest parts about it is when you really hit those and, I know that Jimmy Orr would have been the one that I can say without a doubt. We would have just every night I would have watched them and lost it. Yeah. What was there? Did it come close at all? Or was it just kind of two different worlds at that time? Or I remember, I think I remember at some point there was like some talks, like I, we, like our name was in a hat at some point. Um, I think at a certain point when you kind of are, uh, drawing the same fans or requesting the same amount of money, then there's there's parts of it where like, well, we want to headline our own shows because we want to have our own production. Like we want to play right. our performance. And so you, at a certain point, like the shit sails to some extent. Yeah. Um, and, and you and you realize that because you're like, well, we kind of have a crew to feed now, and you have you have more people that you look out for. So. Um, you kind of know that the the dollars and cents and the politics aren't going to allow that show to happen, so mm. you kind of just accept it. Yeah. What uh, What's one of the craziest things that happened while on stage playing? Anything major go wrong, or did someone play a prank on you while drumming? <laughs> um, we have a few songs that are a three count. Um, and... I miscounted the wrong song once. Um, and it's so funny to hear three musicians play one song and have the drummer play a completely different <laughs> song. Yeah. And you all are playing with like such intensity for about s- three or four seconds, but it sounds like an eternity. And all we, all I did was you need like stand up and like look at the monitor guy, like blaming it on him and just started pointing the stuff. And I think the band like knew what had happened and they were like looking over there too and kind of like backed me up. And then, and then I was like, then I was like, I did like the okay symbol. And then we started it off and played it again. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's... Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, in, in all of our times of playing, I think, uh, um, that's probably one of the worst mistakes. And it was like kind of later on in our career. Um, I remember we played a show. I forget what had happened, but like we were pissed and we were going into, we were going into Canada. Um, I don't know. I remember, I forget what city it was. We were just, I think you were just having one of those bad days, you know, and all of us felt it. And we were like, kind of, we were angry. I felt anger, but I don't know what we were mad about or mad at. And we like, we were in the dressing room. We're like, man, fuck, fuck me. Just, just a low day. Yeah. And we, we all just got super fucking stoned. And we were like, kind of just like, like screw it. Like stone or whatever. And we went out on stage and the crowd was fantastic. But we kind of like, we kind of weren't playing for them at that point. Like we just wanted to like, I think each of us played that one show like for our for for each for themselves like it was right. like you know what i'm gonna 
I was like, if I'm, and I'm the drummer, so I'm in the back, and it's like, no one really cares about me. But I probably played that, that entire set with like my eyes closed. And it was probably, you're in a room full of probably 1,500 people, and there could have been one person there for all we knew. We just kind of played like we were at a rehearsal space. And I don't know if we played a tighter show than that day. Wow. That's cool. We got off and everyone was like, you guys just ripped. And it was just one of those like cathartic performances that, you know, you don't know when or why that might happen. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you, you, you know, and, and you understand as a drummer, like, you know, you can have a pretty bad day, but once you hear rocks and drums, like it's hard not to be pretty stoked on life. And you just, we just played it out that day. And the crowd was just kind of like, holy shit, what the hell just happened? Like, are those guys okay? Because that set was dope. <laughs> um, Literally. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll, there was one thing that happened in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. We, so a weird thing that Cartel used to do was um, we used to try to like play in, in different scenarios during practice. So we would play our set normal, and then we would play our set drunk. We'd all go get we'd all go get lunch and get hammered, and then come back and play our set. And then we'd play it again in the dark. Wow! And kind of part of the 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 point was you'd kind of be prepared for any situation. Right. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. But it really is kind of a way to mix it up on yourselves and have fun. Well, there was a show in Jacksonville beach. I think we were playing with Hey Monday and we played and we were co-headlining and Hey Monday went on stage and we're sitting there and we're watching and, and, and uh, Cassidy goes, did you guys notice that the lights went out during cartel set for three minutes and they didn't miss a note? Wow. And I looked over and I looked over at Will and I said, the lights went out? And he goes, you didn't notice? I said, not at all. Wow. Well, I guess and that's so, how you like, practice those things. So we literally like just played in the dark and there wasn't a single light on and we just ripped. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> good way to like, challenge oh, yourself. Shit. Yeah, that's It awesome. was just one of those things like, I mean, like, uh, we didn't do it a ton, but there were times that we would just, it wound up being the thing and we would just do it. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, that one day I just, I don't remember the lights going off. I don't remember it being dark. I don't remember playing the song. I just was like, Oh, okay. Cause you were like, you were on that much of like muscle memory autopilot. Like yeah. you almost, you almost can't miss, you know? Yeah. No, oh, that's rad. So you alluded to this a little bit with the band in the bubble and, um, just with like booking managers and stuff, but um, what would you say is kind of the biggest music industry letdown or frustration that that you guys had to deal with? Yeah, it's a little bit of that. Like, I don't. I think some of the frustration is sort of how much influence a booking agent can have. Um, you know, they might press some of their stresses onto you. Like, well, I can't get band submissions. Like, I can't get people to submit for your tours because you don't have a full length. Or I can't, I can't submit you for tours because you don't have any new music. I need an EP. And you started to kind of like, you know, you started to kind of formulate your career and the moves you made based on what this person needed to do their job. Right. And then every time you, you, you fulfilled it, it was like, oh, just kidding, I need something else. 
you're like, that was a year of our lives. Like, you, like what? Um, so yeah, I think that misconception of, of how hard it is to get booking and how important of a role they play is one thing. I think one of the things I truly hate is kind of what we talked about with like, with endorsements, how come is it the person that has the money to buy the stuff doesn't have to pay for it? Right. You know, and it's not to say that, you know, it makes sense. The economics of it all makes sense to me. But I used to, like I said, I'd look down at this box of stuff and I'm like, I mean, is, is it a dues paid thing? Like, did I buy enough symbols to earn free symbols? You know, like, yeah. it, it, is it a qualification thing? Like, I don't know. But I wish that there was some better way hmm. to, to aid or support. I mean, music equipment's not cheap. Oh, man. And I mean... You know, I mean, as a drummer, you know, and yep. even my lead, even Will, senior cartel, like, came to me at one point recently, and he was like, drums are expensive. I said, <laughs> yes. I said, you've got a drum set that's thousands. I said, you have cymbals that are thousands. You have stands that are about a thousand. You've got accompanying stand, like, you've got cases, you've got heads, you've got sticks that do not last. And so those are, those are waste. You know, I was like, all that, and then I go, and then to tour, I've got to have backups to the backup. Right. So, like, I was like, yeah, I mean, my traveling rig was anywhere from probably 10, 12, 15 grand at any given time of stuff. And, I mean, yeah, I remember, remember working two jobs and sleeping in, like, the car that I had at the time to kind of be at work early enough to just keep going, to buy stuff, to support myself. And I remember thinking... You know, I used to work so hard for this, and now you'll just give it to me. And I just remember being like conflicted. You know, I I didn't know how to process that sometimes. As yeah. like, like I said, is it something that I earned? Like, is my is my are my dues paid or whatever I did? But I do wish that there was some way to um, subsidize or create something for people to get. You know, and not just like I don't know, not crap equipment, like good equipment. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> Like, you know, like give them the Gibson SG, not the Epiphone. Like, let's get them with, like, um, I don't know. But I, I think that's one of those things of the music business that I'm, uh, I think the other, the other thing that I hate, uh, which is a lot more big picture, is that of the arts, uh, of the arts, music is one of the ones that has the smallest window for creativity mm-hmm. for a, a brand. You know, you look at any artist or group you, you, you've experienced and gone through and, you know, they have an opportunity to pop up at a time in your life that coincides with a time in their life to give you maybe four years of attention. Yeah. And after that, if you haven't eclipsed into some into one of the biggest acts in the world, then you are relegated to, you know, mundaneness after some time um and you know you're often pigeon held into a comparison of of what people consider your best work Mm, um and and i think i've been there you know i've been a fan of a band and be like doesn't sound like their first record you know and that sucks to say you know but i think there's a really harsh uh judgment or just a really small window that we give these great individuals uh you know a time to succeed be their best or accept their work 
And I think that's kind of weird, but yeah. it just kind of is. I mean, like that's, that's how music becomes a soundtrack to your life. And then it becomes a soundtrack to someone else's and a soundtrack to someone else's. It's just, it kind of always has been and always will be. Yeah, I definitely think it's one of the the arts that has kind of the most pressure on it and people have the most, maybe just for me because I'm a music fan, um, you know, just kind of the most weight on it. I don't know if, you know, painters or poets or, you know, any of those other ones, if they feel that same thing, maybe those fans of that kind of art are more forgiving. But yeah, totally right I mean, with you can, that. You know, you can paint for decades and then you can enter into your blue period or wherever you want to, you know, all of a sudden you've changed everything about how you do and oh my god it's even crazier than before and you're like it's it's what like how come what um you know or architecture you know you can you can take a time and and there's there's you know mid-century modern and then all of a sudden you can go into all these other dimensions with it and it's um it's crazy um and then you get into music and it's one of the most special ones and it's it just evolves so much and it's it's such an interesting thing that we've created as human beings it's, yeah. it's mind blowing <laughs> what's the uh the best friendship that you've made with a, a non cartel band member so do you have uh like kind of over the years is there another guy from another band that you kind of really grew close to someone that you would kind of still consider a good friend oh my god there's I mean, there's, there's so lots. many there's there's lots and i think I think one of the uh, what's been one of the most beneficial parts of moving to Nashville is how many how many people from the world that cartel existed in have ended up here. Yeah, and and sometimes sometimes you look back on a tour and you go, man, we're so close with that band, right? And then all of a sudden, twelve years later, you see these people in person, and you're like, are we friends? Or were we just buds that for that one eight week period, that one time, yeah. you know? And so you find yourself going, well, I know that we know each other, but we both know that we don't know each other. And, and here you are in the same city and under different circumstances, you know, like you're no longer in a band, you know, and, and my band's no longer, you know, aggressively active and, and, here we are just two guys doing something different now with our time than before, knowing that we have this thread in common that no one can take away. And so you kind of get to reinvestigate and re-meet and reconvene. And like that discovery has been a lot of fun um, because there's probably too many, there's probably too many people to single out in yeah, terms of yeah, people that you, that you really connected with and, and might get a birthday call from or a text or see when they come through town or visit other band visits and you still get to see them. Um, so, you know, like I, I, I felt most connected to probably um, the trios guys receiving an siren guys and um, the uh, as tall as lion guys and, uh, just some, some of those earlier bands you feel really connected to because in some way, shape, or form, you're in the middle of the, oh, uh, well, if your friends jumped off the bridge, are you going to jump with them kind of phase yeah. of it where you've just quit college, moved back in with your parents. You know, when the risk feels the biggest, 
you look at people beside you and go, you're doing the same thing I'm doing. You have just as much to lose. And that's why they're so important in that time. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty cool, that's a cool time where you're probably the most susceptible to those friendships. But I mean, like, I think we bonded with like starting line and newfound glory, you know, probably the most, um, but I mean, I love the boys like girls guys and I love, you know, I love every band we got to tour with and meet, um, and you still get to see and talk to and experience so many of those people. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So you've touched on a little bit of this too. Um, when you look back at all of the years of playing in cartel, what kind of, um, you know, gives you the biggest feels, whether it's, you know, different emotions or things that stand out. I mean, you mentioned about that, the Titanic story, which is really cool. <laughs> um, what are uh, kind of a few other things that, you know, that you would kind of like take with you? I mean, I think I, I look at it and just love that, you know, the, the same guys that you dreamt it up with were the same guys you got to do it with, you know, and, um, and you all had to do so much to make it happen. Yeah. Um, I feel very fortunate that we had so many professional individuals that took chances, risk mm. that worked, you know, that spent time from their families or their loved ones to invest their energy into the same thing that I was trying to do. Um, uh, it's, it's such a, it's such a strange world, but it's, it's so cool to get in and kind of get out because it's, it's really fickle and, it's slippery. And to be honest, like no one knows what they're fucking doing. You know, no one knows. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, it's everyone's best guess. And for some people, some people have a lot more to lose than others. Um, and I never felt that we had anything to lose. And I think, you know, looking around and having childhood friends is probably what kept you the close, the closest to being sane. Um, they kept your ego at bay. They kept you in check, you know, because they knew you. You yeah. know, and you couldn't pull, you couldn't pull a fast one over. Um, I wouldn't change a single thing that we did or chose to do or opportunity we got. Like I look at it all so fondly and appreciative of, of everything we were given and got to experience. It was, I mean, what a, what a crazy little ride. I, I feel so fortunate to kind of, to really be unscathed, to be honest, because if you really get too, too, too much, much bigger, there's really no coming back. Right. Um, I feel like if you were to have to transition out of that life, it's going to be more difficult. You know, if you get even bigger, you know, you're hoping that you make a, a lifetime of retirement money because the world will treat you different or know of you differently. And that's tough to live with forever, mm. you know? So yeah, I remember... Another kind of little story was I remember we went to the VMAs um, one year and I'm literally in a circle like it's me, one of the guys from Cartel, I think it's Tom DeLong, Newfound Glory, uh, I forget, and maybe one other, like I think the guy from Good Charlotte. And I'm sitting there and I was, I'm just staring at it. I'm like, what the hell are we doing here? You know, like. <laughs> You kind of look around. I'm like, oh, there's Paris Hilton. I was like, wow, she's even hotter in person. Like, this is crazy. Like, um, and you're just going like, again, it's one of those moments where you just zone out and like 
think of the back roads you took to school. Yeah. And you're like, what? Like, it, it, you, you just kind of pinch yourself and go, um, everything's changed. And you realize that you're flying awfully close to the sun. Yeah. You know, and you really, you really have to juggle how close you want to get. Um, because if you get much, much bigger, you're never going to come back and it's a burn you get to live with forever. And it might influence you from a money standpoint or success standpoint. And those are very, uh, very dark things to, to struggle and, and deal with and accept. And you never sometimes can get enough of it. The more, the more success you get, the more success you want, the more money you get, the more money you want. Yeah. It's kind of a lack of satisfaction. Um, and I, and again, we only touched on some of those emotions where I was like, okay, enough for me to see and understand and compartmentalize the difference in the way I was feeling right? or the difference in the way the world reacted to me or treated my friends and I, you know, stuff like that. They're like, let me carry your stuff. And I'm like, I can carry my drums. Like I, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Like a functioning adult, you know, like. I don't want to be like Mariah Carey where like you can't go out in the street or, or any pop star where they can't live a life. Like right. I just don't yeah. think it's ever worth that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I think, I think I got as much as my childhood dreams could, you know, could digest. Yeah. And it was enough to go, you did it. You did it with the guys you love. You did it safely. Cool. <laughs> like, it's a because it really feels like a giant bet. You're literally at the table going black. Let's put it all on black. Yeah. And and I kind of feel that we walked away with all of our chips, just kind of looking at each other, going, "Oh, oh man, <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man." Well, that's yeah. That's uh, yeah, lots of great thoughts in there, and a good place to to wrap up. And maybe maybe sure. there isn't anything for this last question, but if if you could do only one more thing with cartel. Um, what would it be? So uh, assuming there's no COVID or anything, you know, like, sure. If there is, I, uh, I I think the thing that I've always loved most is nothing we've done has felt pressured, um, or felt forced or felt like undesired. Um, every time that we needed, we needed time off the road to write. It was the time that we needed, uh, Every time a record came out is because it's what we wanted to write. We had the songs, we had the material, we had the influence. Um, and I think that kind of by being able to put everything on the shelf um, and take a little step back from it and kind of invest energy and time and other interests, it kind of only gives you more appreciation for what, you know, all of that is. Yeah. And, and I think what it does is sets you up for what might be next naturally. Hmm. And so if, if, if something comes along and if it's a few shows a year, like I think we're in a safe place to do that. If it's some extra music, you know, sure. You know, if it's, tours or a tour or something like I, I think whatever might present itself is going to be um the next right thing and you know what i mean like it's just going to be it'll it'll make sense i don't think that we're trying to 
I don't want to say beat a dead horse, but you right. know, like I don't think we're trying to make something of what's left. Like, oh, we only have this much in the tank. Better gas it. Like, no, nah, I think uh, if something, if if opportunities were to arise, it'd be because we all are kind of intrigued by. Well, you guys want to get in the room together and see what happens, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I think that we're in the best place we could be for the next natural thing that would be the next thing we want to happen to right. happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, I, I really have a, enjoyed this conversation and just appreciate <laughs> all your your insights and the stories and, and looking back. I mean, sure. this it's. It's just cool to me, you know. I can still remember um, where I was when I heard Chroma for the first time, and and uh, kind of you know following you along the journey with Band in a Bubble, and uh, you know even you know up until when I saw you guys a number of years ago, and and so yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for for taking the time to to be yeah, on of here. Of course, it's my time, my pleasure. Again, I think anytime you get a chance to kind of uh, to talk about it, you. Uh, you gain an, even a, another, an extra level of understanding and appreciation for kind of, you know, all that it entails. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And I mean, that's one, um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have, to have you on the show. Like I, I know Will's been on a few podcasts and, you know, lots of times the, you know, maybe the typical band person does the interviews, and, sure. but I wanted to make sure yeah. and, you know, talk to someone, you know, especially a drummer too. And, because, yeah, there's right. lots of different kind of insight and stuff. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today. Aaron, my pleasure. Shit. Thought we had everybody. Keep the target painted. <laughs>